Seeing is believing, says the old proverb. It's a, the meaning is pretty simple. It means if you want me to believe something, I need to see it with my own two eyes. I need to be an eyewitness. You can think of uh, St. Thomas the Apostle. He gets his nickname, Doubting Thomas, from John chapter 20. The rest of the apostles see the risen Christ, and they tell Thomas, we have seen the Lord. And he says, unless I see the nail marks with my eyes and put my fingers in the nail marks and my hand in his side, I will not believe. Well, a week later, the Lord appears and says to him, do you believe because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. It seemed that our Lord doesn't put too much stock in this old proverb, seeing is believing. But the simple truth is that even on a natural level, nobody can really live their life entirely with that concept, uh, seeing is believing. Because on a natural level, we all live by faith. Faith on the human natural level simply means accepting something is true based on the testimony of another person whom we deem credible. Let me give a really easy example. Let's say you're running a business and an employee calls in sick. If you find that employee to be trustworthy and honest, most likely you're just going to take their word for it and say, rest up, get better, we'll see you when you're well. If that employee has not shown himself to be trustworthy, if he's shown himself to be dishonest, you might not take his word for it. You might say, bring a doctor's note in when you return. You might ask for something more than just his testimony. Or just think of the field of education. It's based on this human faith. It's based on trusting in the authority of teachers, of the books we read, of the media we consume. Now, yes, of course, education eventually wants to get us to where we can see the truth for ourselves, but it always begins by trusting the testimony of a witness, a teacher, the author of a book, the author of an article. That's what human faith is. Our second reading especially speaks about faith, not so much this human natural faith, but supernatural faith. What's the difference between the two? The witness. In human faith, the witness is a fellow human being. Human beings, we can be honest or deceptive. We can be right, we can have a correct understanding of things, or we can be mistaken and wrong. We're fallible. In supernatural faith, the witness is God himself, God who is truth himself, the first and sovereign truth. God is he who cannot deceive nor be deceived. And so when God speaks, we have an absolute certitude of the truth of what he's revealing to us, what he's saying. Now, I could imagine the skeptic saying, okay, fine, I'll grant you, God, by definition, is truth himself. He can't deceive us. If he speaks, we have this absolute rock-solid certitude it's true. I get that. Fine. How do we know God is truly speaking to us? How do we know he's spoken to us in sacred scripture, in sacred tradition, the teachings of the Catholic Church? How do we know that? The answer is that he has shown us his credentials, so to speak. He's given us reasons for believing that it is he himself who has spoken. 
And there are three broad categories of these reasons. First, there are miracles, things that are not naturally possible that only God, who's all-powerful, can do. Then there are prophecies. We don't know what will happen tomorrow. We can probably make a pretty good guess. We don't know what will happen in 500 years. We probably can't make a pretty good guess. But God knows the future. He knows all things. He's outside of time. And so if something is prophesied, if some prophecy is given and later fulfilled, it's a sign that it's truly God who's speaking. And then lastly, we have the endurance of the people of God, first in Israel, through thick and thin, and then in the church, through persecution from without and scandal and division from within. Our second reading upholds the patriarch Abraham as this model of faith. He is our father in faith. And we see in the life of Abraham examples of all three of these categories, these reasons for believing that God has truly spoken. First, there's the the miraculous. We see that in the child of the promise, Isaac. When God first speaks to Abraham, he is 75 years old. His wife, Sarah, is 66. They are childless. As our second reading said, Sarah was, was sterile. God promises Abraham he will have an heir, a son. And 25 years later, that is fulfilled. Sarah has, uh, Sarah is pregnant, conceived, and delivers a boy, Isaac. Just throwing out the fact that Sarah was unable to get pregnant, a 91-year-old woman to conceive and, and deliver a child is simply not possible in the ordinary course of things, just as it's not possible for a virgin to conceive and give birth, just as it's not possible for the dead to rise to new life. But all those things uh, are possible because nothing is impossible for God, God who is all-powerful. And we see that in the case of Isaac, this child of the promise coming from a man who our reading says himself is as good as dead. We also see prophecies fulfilled in Abraham's life. God promises that he will be the father of a vast nation, more, more, you know, a vast multitude, greater than the stars of the sky or the sands on the seashore. And when Abraham dies, he has one heir, Isaac. Seemingly, the safe bet would be that this line will soon be extinguished. Or, or let, me, let me use kind of a more current example to show how unlikely it is for a great nation to come out of Abraham's one heir. Uh, another Abraham, Abraham Lincoln, who died in 1865, he and his wife Mary Todd Lincoln had four children. By 1985, Lincoln's last living descendant was dead. That means there are no living descendants. His line is extinguished 120 years after he died. So, again, seemingly the safe bet is that Isaac, if Isaac himself, even if he has children, he's not going to be, there's not going to be this great, vast nation that grows out of his line. But Isaac has Jacob and Esau, and Jacob's sons, uh, they become the fathers of the children uh, that become the 12 tribes of Israel. The 12 tribes of Israel are named for Jacob's sons. What do we see? God speaks a prophecy to Abraham. It is fulfilled. This vast nation arises out of his descendants. And it, we also see that third category, the perseverance of the people of God, because they survive slavery in Egypt. They survive 
uh, Pharaoh trying to kill all the male children. They survive conquest by the Assyrians and then the Babylonians in exile and return from exile in conquest again by the Greeks and then the Romans. And then with Jesus Christ, a descendant by blood of Abraham, membership in God's covenant is open to all nations so that all people are descendants of, uh, all who believe are descendants of Abraham, if not by blood, then by faith. God fulfills his prophecy, and it's because of God that this people of God, first in Israel and now in the church, has endured down to today. Faith, supernatural faith, enables us to believe all that God has revealed to be true. And we know that God himself has spoken in the Bible, in sacred tradition, in the church's teachings because of these three categories, his miracles, his prophecies, and the endurance of the people of God. This is faith. You know, I've been thinking about faith a lot in the past few days, especially since Value Them Both was defeated by a wide margin on Tuesday night. And the results were very disheartening. There's a lot that perhaps I'd like to say, but I'll limit it to this. We cannot allow discouragement to fester in the wake of value them both's defeat. I've thought a lot about Archbishop Nauman's motto in the past few days. His motto is Vitae Victoria Edit, Latin for life will be victorious. That statement is true not because I say it or because the Archbishop says it, but because God says it. 1 Corinthians, we read that in the end, Christ will put all enemies under his feet, and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. God, through the writings of St. Paul, is telling us that in the end, the forces of death will not have the last word, but he will, that life will be victorious. Of course, the reality that life will be victorious doesn't mean that we don't have our work cut out for us. We do, and the difficult work must now begin of redoubling our efforts to support crisis pregnancy centers and the difficult work of seeking to change the hearts and minds of fellow Kansans. But first and foremost, we must allow this certainty of faith uh, to console us and to spur us on, to spur us to imitate Abraham, to continue on the pilgrimage of faith towards our true homeland of heaven, seeking to do God's will so that he can make us into the saints he created us to be.